awakening or enlightenment or Buddhahood, what you want, the goal is somewhere distant, far in the future, on the other side of a lifetime of diligent practice. And what those working with those medicines did was reveal to me the truth that I'm already that. All right, Scott Odom, welcome to Methods. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I've been following you for a little while on Instagram, and I'm just really infatuated with your perspective on the spiritual path and, um, and the way that you frame things from your background, because I think it's really unique and it's, uh, it's really helpful the way that you put things. So can you just give Methods listeners a little bit of a background about you and, and your journey thus far? Yeah, for sure. Um... I'm a retired cop, so I did that for 23 years, and um, I guess even before that, I was always kind of a spiritual seeker, um, but it wasn't until I started dealing with the traumatic effects of a job in law enforcement that I started looking for a spiritual path that was... Um, more direct and something that could really support me in the suffering that I was experiencing. And then um, my daughter started getting involved into drugs and got addicted and started into a whole criminal lifestyle. And that was all unfolding in the jurisdiction that I worked. So there was just a lot of suffering on kind of all planes um, and I got into Tibetan Buddhism. I was looking for support for a meditation practice because one of the things about being a street cop is that we don't really want to go get therapy and there's a, a hesitation to let the agency know that you're being treated for depression or suicidal ideation or whatever it might be. Of course, they'll tell you that you're more than welcome to do that and there's support available for you. But I think um, I had the feeling at least that if I pursued that, I would be taken off of the assignments that I really enjoyed and I wouldn't be able to go out there and rock and roll with everybody else. So whether it was accurate or not, I felt like it was something that I needed to do on my own. So I looked for a Buddhist meditation center near me. I found one. I went and like almost right away met a teacher that just opened the doors for me. So that began my journey into Tibetan Buddhism. And I've been on that path for 17 years and just gotten better. Like I got what I was, what I was seeking, um, a handle on uh, the emotional trauma and a way to work with the mind and to work with the emotions in a way that was really clear and super beneficial. And then over the last three or four years, I started working with um, the Santo Daimi tradition, which is, um, it's a weird ayahuasca-based church that's um, from South America. And they use ayahuasca as their sacrament. And um, unlike the shamanic applications of ayahuasca in the Santo Daimi, it's very much a group activity that's centered around prayer and singing and dancing and meditation within the space of, of the ayahuasca medicine. So that for me brought in the somatic aspect, the embodied aspect of practice, which I think um, was kind of lacking in my Tibetan Buddhist practice, which was primarily mental and intellectual and not so much somatic, not so much body-centered. 
Um, so yeah, that was, I guess that's where I'm at right now is working with uh, sacred medicines and working with uh, Tibetan Buddhism primarily. And lately that's been joined with um, Vedanta non-dual practice mm -hmm. and study. So that's, that's about where I am right now. Nice. Well, it's, it's, it's funny. It's, it's kind of like my journey a little bit just because of the vast resources that you're, that you're drawing from and, and influences. And there's so many directions that, that I could go. And I was kind of struggling when I was preparing uh, for this conversation, whether to start broad and, and go narrow or whether to start narrow and then widen out. Um, mm. But I, I'm just really curious because as far as the history of your career as a police officer, I, because of the, the issues that uh, 2020 blew open uh, for the United States, my city began a, a task force for police reform, which I was lucky enough to become a part of. And one of the, the huge elements of that is, on one hand, mental health-related calls for service, but then also mental health within the department itself. And, and they, every, every one of the officers that are, you know, facilitating with the task force basically echoed the exact same thing that you just said is that there's this huge stigma and reluctancy to, to reach out and to seek mental help because there's this kind of culture of, I guess, being able to, to handle everything that's thrown at you and not having to be vulnerable in any kind of way. So, so can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's such a key aspect to any sort of comprehensive um, reworking of the police paradigm of, you know, how we mitigate and control violent actors in our society. And I, you know, I personally strongly feel like police reform is necessary. And I think that in my view, in my experience, the men and women that undertake that mission, they're great people and they're genuinely motivated by compassion, genuinely motivated by a desire to serve and a willingness to put their ass on the line in a way that, you know, many human beings are not. But you're right. We don't have a mechanism in place to address the psychic and emotional toll that doing that work takes on the providers. And as long as we leave that box unchecked, we're going to be dealing with the unintended consequences of stressed out and traumatized individuals going out and doing violence on behalf of our society and ending up with outcomes that are not beneficial to anyone. So it's something that we need to explore and we need to find a way to bring that support to those men and women without making them wrong or weak or somehow less for seeking that. I mean, it's just like physical fitness. It's just like having cardio and strength training. You need to have some sort of reg regimen for supporting mental health and a recognition that we swim in these very dark waters day in and day out for years and years and years. And that has a cumulative effect. I don't care how badass you are. I don't care how together you are. It costs you something. And there's no need to just ride that train all the way to, you know, alcoholism, divorce, suicide, which is the outcome that happens to a lot of guys. Yeah. So do you think that there's a, like a, a spiritual need for, for lack of a better word in the system of policing in, in the U S like where's, where's the disconnect and what's the root? Is there like a specific aspect of policing that, um, 
exacerbates like these symptoms? Well, I would say that the the underlying problem is endemic and widespread across our whole society. So it's not just that cops need spirituality, but bad guys need spirituality. Um, we all need spirituality. We all need to um, address the shadow aspect of ourselves. We all need to understand how our emotions function, how our mind functions, and how ultimately we really are in control of our experience and we are in control of how we relate to external experience. Um, but without that foundation, we get caught up in appearances and we get caught up in what unfolds in front of us and we lose that sense of agency. We, we sort of have the, the experience of being besieged by outer circumstances. So yeah, and it's so hard. It's like, because then you say, well, what, can you mandate spirituality? Can you mandate some sort of eight-hour training block for recruits? Okay, get your spiritual creaminess on, ready, go. You know, that's, that's not really realistic either. Um, but I think there is a place to set the stage for that and use mindfulness-based tools, non-sectarian tools to developmental calmness to develop emotional resiliency and to point towards the truth and then those people that are oriented in that direction or or intrigued by it can pursue it on their own um, as far as they want but yeah i think there there is room for like just shamatha meditation just calm abiding meditation um, that's strictly somatic and that works with our emotions and our mind, at least as a starting point. You you kind of delved into Tibetan Buddhism as kind of your solution to the the stresses of your environment and everything. So what what exactly was it about Tibetan Buddhism specifically, like say over Zen or um, or any other types of Buddhism? Um, for me, it was just purely a um, question of availability. So that was the, the center that I found that was in my community was a Tibetan Buddhist center. And to be honest, I was totally put off by the appearance of the whole Tibetan Buddhist thing. Like I really, I, what I envisioned in my mind was more of a Zen approach, like no prayers, no weirdness, no worship, just sit and meditate. Um, so I guess I was really lucky in a way that my suffering was so extreme and I was so debilitated by it that I was willing to do anything. So I was willing to set aside my personal preferences and just say, this is the medicine, I'm going to take it and we'll see what happens. So it wasn't like I chose Tibetan Buddhism because I was attracted to it at all. And in fact, all of the aspects of the practice that I encountered initially, I just thought, no way. I don't like that. I don't like that. And those aspects became the key to unlocking um, the door to true happiness, true lasting happiness. Mm. What, what do you think that was? Was it your resistance to it and overcoming that resistance that that made those, uh, those practices so beneficial or was it something in the practice itself? I, I think both of those are accurate, but I think that to go with the first part of that response, that we have preferences for what we think our spirituality should look like and what our teachers should sound like and what practice should look like. And if we're already suffering and we're already lost, our preferences are not a reliable guide. What we think that we need, what we think that we want, is really usually just what the ego is seeking to bolster itself, to keep itself whole. And so by engaging with practices that are not what the ego prefers, you start to um, more directly undermine the ego right away. At least that was my experience of it. 
And then, you know, just the technology of these practices that are 2,500 years old um, that have been honed to a razor's edge with thousands and thousands and thousands of students going through them, um, they possess their own power. And I think that uh, is what I experienced anyway, is that I could just bring my broken self to the cushion and do those practices, even though I didn't like them, even though I didn't really understand them, even though I wasn't aware of a heart connection to them. And all by themselves, those technologies created changes in my mind stream and changes in my emotional body that um, resulted in really observable changes in the outer world and in my inner condition. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I I was wondering because it seems, at least from the outsider perspective, I don't know a ton about Tibetan Buddhism, but it seems of the other streams of thought, it seems like such an esoteric kind of branch of uh of Buddhism with the, you know, the um Vajrayana and, you know, tantric practices and all that stuff and it it kind of reminded me a little bit of like baroque kind of christianity which kind of it's been a sort of small mission of mine to disentangle some of the the webs of metaphor and ways that uh they've described things for centuries that just get lost in the sauce i guess and mm-hmm. so it seems like to me as far as christianity goes it's such a sweet fruit but there's such a thick rind on the outside and that kind of made me see some possible similarities with tibetan buddhism but did you have any experience with that kind of thick rind of just the baroque like gaudy language or difficult concepts to translate to a westerner yeah absolutely i mean i think that's a that's a spot on observation and it it echoes mine i was like this is just another version of the Catholic church and, you know, with liturgies and guys dressed up in robes and incense. And, you know, it seemed like it was all form, but I wasn't sure if there was substance there underneath it or not. And if the form, like, I think so many people just bounce off the form because the form, at least in Tibetan Buddhism, it's very foreign to the Western mind. Um, and I think that there's always a danger when you're doing practices that incorporate a form with reifying that form and taking the form and its iterations as the fruit rather than the vehicle to bring to the fruit directly. So, yeah, I think as, as we mature as practitioners, it's incumbent upon us to really, really, really look at what we're doing, to look at the forms, to question the forms, to discard the forms, to wander away from the forms towards our heart's orientation. So that's essential, but it's also essential to stay within the form and let the form knock off the rough edges of the ego and undermine the ego so that the light of the truth can shine through more purely and more vividly. And then once you catch sight of that light, once you feel it and you know it and you recognize it, then that becomes your North star and you follow that. And that might lead you into more arcane forms, or it might lead you away from forms, or it might lead you into another realm of practice altogether, which is what my experience was. But I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's problematic. There's no, um, I don't think there's a path that's free from the possibility of confusion and error. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it reminds me of something I've heard Ram Dass say about taking the curriculum, you know, letting, letting it work on you rather than you working on it. And and I guess it's I guess it's kind of the same in no matter what tradition you're in, like there's a internal discernment where you have to know uh 
when the the form or the practice is you know something that you just need to keep doing and let it work on you or when it's time to let it go so did you have a specific moment when when you um found that it was time to let a particular part of your practice go yeah i'm that's sort of unfolding for me right now mm-hmm. too um but definitely stepping onto the medicine path starting to work with ayahuasca and combo um those were really big leaps into the unknown for me and they are not condoned by my lineage it's not condoned by my teachers um we're warned away from utilizing substances that expand the mind um and we're warned you know not to mix traditions not to mix the teachings but i was really clear and the call was really clear and i knew that for me it was necessary to go forward with that exploration and i did it with the full knowledge and awareness of my teachers i went to my teachers i said hey this is what's going on this is what i feel called to do and i think it's important and then you know so they told me oh don't do that <laughs> that that's really dangerous you, you know there's all these um unintended consequences that come and it wasn't a puritanical you know response it was generally genuinely arose out of their compassion for me but yeah pretty clear don't don't do this and then i did it anyway and then i went back to them and said okay i'm doing this these are my experiences this is how i feel it ties into our tradition and i was i remember being on retreat after i've been working with aya for about a year and i went back to my teacher and had a conference with her and she was the one who had warned me most most forcefully not to do it and at the end of our talk she was like go you're right this is right for you and she gave me her blessings and that that helped a lot but we do i mean we all know people in our own individual traditions that stay stuck within the form and don't taste the fruit right they just show up and say their prayers and join their groups and talk to talk but the light doesn't come on inside them they don't radiate that knowing and that loving presence of god or inner awareness whatever you want to call it um so it's definitely as dangerous to stay locked in the form without following your heart as it is to wander away from the form because you're following your heart i mean you can make mistakes in either direction but i think the most genuine practitioners the people that are engaged the most deeply with whatever their practice is I would urge them to follow their hearts regardless of what the outer form comes to look like because they know what they're doing right I mean once you've gotten to a certain level of understanding and experience I I think you know you can you have to leave the guide behind mm-hmm. and strike out on your own into the wilderness yeah that's a vital part of the spiritual growth yeah yeah, there's a, a corollary um, language used in like the Christian tradition with um, like the will and the heart being, you know, the organ of spiritual perception. And then there's a certain point where the things that we use to kind of cover over our, you know, seeing eye of the heart get purged away and we begin to look inward rather than outward. And, and at that point, our will and our desire is kind of like the rocket fuel that we, you know, can use to stoke that fire before it eventually gets burned out entirely. So was there like a difference before and after as far as your experience of of your journey? I'm sure there was, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what was that yeah, like? For sure. Well, um, I mean, I was blessed in my 
you know, Tibetan Buddhist path to taste the fruits very quickly of practice. And I had a lot of experiences and I had a lot of transcendent mystical openings. So I knew that I was on the right path and I knew that I was dealing with what I would call basic reality, right? It's not a structure that's imposed from any kind of external source. It's a recognition of the nature of reality itself. So I went into the Daimi and into Kambo um, already kind of on my feet spiritually. But those medicines, those allies, those powers totally rocked my world and totally opened my heart's eye to a new landscape. So, yeah, um, I think for me, like it started with combo, which is this frog secretion from the Phylomedusa bicolor, um, which is a tree frog in the Amazon. And they scraped the frog skin and put the little secretions onto burns that you make in your skin. And that medicine goes into the lymphatic system and it causes vomiting, purging. And it was used originally to fortify the body for the hunt and to purify negative spiritual emotions, you know, bad spiritual energy. Um, and I sort of got into that looking for a treatment alternative for my daughter's drug addiction. And I had heard about good things about it and good things about ayahuasca for the treatment of drug addiction. So I got into that, hoping that I opened the door for her. But of course, it was really me that needed that, right? I, I needed that, um, the help of those medicines. And what they did in a really direct way, it's sort of more... I don't know if you're familiar with the relative truth and absolute truth in Tibetan Buddhism. So the absolute truth is that you already are awake. You already are Buddha. Everything is pure loving awareness without limitation. And the objects that appear to consciousness are only a manifestation of that innate quality of awareness. But on the relative level, we're human beings. We have bodies. We operate in the world of objects and sense sensations. So those medicines primarily helped me with the relative truth aspect of my existence. Um, they helped me reclaim my personal power. They helped me see the ways in which I had given that away to other people and to other structures within my society and sort of brought me into my own heart in a super powerful way. And then Combo is not psychoactive and ayahuasca is psychoactive. So when I started working with ayahuasca, it was just like, um, I don't know, a direct conduit to God without any mediation. And it's so disconcerting and overwhelming an experience. But what they showed me, I think, is that um, love is the foundation of basic reality and that we can access these allies and guides that are part of the relative world to help us awaken and that they have an intention to do that. They're a benevolent, helpful source for us to utilize for our own awakening. And by utilizing those tools, I was then able to go back to my Tibetan Buddhist practice, re-energized and with a new sense of wisdom, so that my practice in the Tibetan path totally exploded. And it just leaped frogged me forward in development a huge amount. So it wasn't that I abandoned one for the other, but tried to unify them without diluting either one. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you tasted what you were seeking before, whereas before maybe you, you knew about it but didn't taste it? Yeah, I had, I, I had definitely tasted it beforehand. So it was not a qualitatively different experience, 
but it was deeper and richer. And it included aspects like the somatic aspect, especially the connection to the body and uh, the awareness of the subtle body. Like those, those were more theoretical to me. Even my own human body was kind of theoretical to me <laughs> in the Tibetan Buddhist path. It wasn't something that I utilized, but on the medicine path, the body is intrinsic to that work. And the subtle body really shines forth in a way that's so tangible that it helped me understand, okay, this is the energy body. This is the subtle body. These are the systems that are working. I can see it and feel it. And then I can touch into that when I return to my Tibetan Buddhist practice. So I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Is that something yeah. that stuck with you like after or like, was there like a, a wearing off of that awareness or is that something that you can still tap into? Oh yeah. It's, it's here. It's, it's part of me for sure. I think um, both with the combo and with the Santo Daimi, I had this experience, the somatic experience while in, in the medicine that those medicines joined with me physiologically, like changed my DNA. That was the subjective experience of it. Um, and then now many years on, I feel that they're with me. I feel that they, not that they're with me as some external thing, but they're a part of who I am and what I am. In that field where you kind of saw the, the basis of reality as, as love. And then when you come back to it, you know, knowing the uh, unconditioned reality versus the conditioned reality, does it, how does it um, change the way that you, practice like how like how does it change the way that you approach practice knowing that you know your individual self is not the the be all end all of experience yeah it was uh, a fundamental shift right because you go from an aspirational practice where you're trying to get something you're trying to rid yourself of some things and accumulate other things um, and awakening or enlightenment or Buddhahood, what you want, the goal is somewhere distant, somewhere far in the future, on the other side of a lifetime of diligent practice. And what those, working with those medicines did was reveal to me the truth that I'm already that, right? We all are. That's, that's who and what we are. And so then practice becomes an act of devotion, celebration, and um, curious exploration of what is. You're not looking for something that isn't there. You're looking at what is and resting in the nature of what is just indescribably vivid and present and infused and suffused with love itself. So... Um, yeah, it totally changed practice. It uh, so I, I pulled out a quote from something that you said that just happens to tie in with this, and it makes me think of though I think the way Ram Das puts it is that you know there's there's multiple levels of awareness and reality, and the trick isn't to ascend to a different level, but it's to be able to operate on two levels at once. And, and something you said really kind of resonated with me uh, in, that, in that vein. You said, um, when we can see what we believed ourselves to be as Christ sees us, we can see that it's not flawed, it's not broken, not as lacking, not as needing to be saved, but as love itself. And when we can enter into the shell of our small relative truth selves without any discomfort at all, no matter what is arising, we can play in that field of luminosity with complete freedom. So, so what is it like as far as do you still experience the, the individual you as a practitioner, I guess, um, engaging in uh, mantra or engaging in 
devotion as a practitioner trying to get something or to rid yourself of something? And do you see that with the the light of awareness that is your true self? And and how do you how does that how do those pieces play together? That's that's such a great question. That's really um brilliant. Um yeah, <clears throat> I think that when we can see ourselves as Christ sees us, it isn't that he doesn't see our flaws and he doesn't see our weakness and he doesn't see our brokenness because we do have flaws and we are weak and we are broken, right? Those are aspects of our relative reality, but he knows them as what they are, which is expressions of innate wisdom and purity and love. There's no, there's no part of us that isn't that love and that perfection, but it manifests to us and to the outer world in every possible way, right? It's not restricted to the bandwidth of only positive experiences. It's a full expression of potentiality. And so, yeah, I think primarily when I practice now, I practice as the heart of the universe, bringing that small body and ego along with me. And I purify him as I purify everything else. And I look upon my faults and my obscurations and my veils as blessings as fuel for awakening, as um, things that tie me to everyone else, to the human condition, right? That spark my compassion, that spark my love, that give me a, a real nuts and bolts understanding of suffering, without which we're, we're lost. I mean, we need the shadow. We need all of those aspects to be fully awake, right? It's not just love and light and rainbows even though that's what underlies everything, those, as they're expressed by the shadow, if we don't speak that language, if we don't move in that shadowy world with the same love, we're shutting out 80 or 90% of, or 99% of human experience. Yeah. So does that? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it reminds me of something that, um, that Julian of Norwich says where she's talking about um about the the fall, you know, the the fall of of sin and separation and she says um both the fall and the recovery from the fall are all grace. Because like you said we need that suffering because I'm I'm a guitarist um hobby guitarist, but it reminds me of when we hit a couple strings and if some if one of those strings is out of tune, you get this oscillation, this like wah 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 warbling effect, and that's the signal that we're not in tune. And so to me, that kind of relates to suffering as that manifestation of um telling us like, hey, we're not in tune. And that draws us back into alignment with ultimate truth or, you know, what really is, you know, love in that way. So yeah. Mm. Oh, one of the things that I wanted to ask was I've seen I've seen your puja table and it's impressive. <laughs> and uh <laughs> can you can you talk a little bit about um who some of the beings are on on your table and, and why they're meaningful to you? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my altar is definitely a reflection of my own heart, my own basic nature. Um, so it's full of a lot of my important teachers. So there's a Buddha Shakyamuni in the center who, you know, is that representation of the enlightened awakened heart um, my primary teacher, Shamar Rinpoche, I have a picture of him. Um, 
the retreat master for most of my primary teachers, Gendon Rinpoche. I have a picture of him. <clears throat> um, Mestre Arenu, who is the founder of the Santo Daimi. I've got a picture of him. I have some representations of Christ and Mary, um, a lot of skulls. Let's see, a uh, picture of Ma and yeah, that's all that's coming to my, oh, the, my combo frog, my offering bowls. Yeah, that, that pretty much covers it. But yeah, any, anybody who I have a heart connection with will go up on the altar. Anybody who appears in my practice will go up on the altar. And it's, it's constantly shifting and changing. But I definitely enjoy the support. Um, of all those beings in my practice. I find them super, super helpful. Yeah. In your practice, in front of your table, do you, do you feel that there's uh, a connection between, you know, on, on the relative level, I guess, you and, and them as separate entities? Or is it more like a, you know, real recognizing real kind of thing? Def definitely the second. <clears throat> and Interesting. I, I feel like I have witnessed a change in how those beings relate to me and how I relate to them through the medium at altar. Um, so early on, it was very aspirational. And from time to time, I would get flashes from a certain statue or a certain photograph and a sense of communication, like you're doing well, keep going, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm in your corner. But now it's more like, Man, they are, they are alive. They are present through those representations. And it's both me looking at myself and them looking at themselves. It, it is reality looking at reality and uh, a recognition that we are like water poured into water, completely indivisible completely unseparate, completely the same essence. And the only difference between us is how our activities manifest in the known world and in the unseen realms. Yeah. It's, it's like you're, you're looking at, you know, a, a guru or a, um, or a teacher and you're, you're looking at a being that, that's never died from a being that was never born and so it's this <laughs> connection you know outside of time in that way yeah that's beautiful yeah yeah i think you know the literature is full of these examples of these enlightened beings telling us directly if you look for me i am there if you call on me i am there i don't have to come to you i am there with you intrinsically always that's literally the truth it's not a metaphor for something else it's that's that's how it is it's the yeah unborn and undying in union with itself mm -hmm. there's a there's a similar experience in in centering prayer um as far as like the cloud of unknowing illustrates where you know you you put a cloud of forgetting between you and you know all forms and then you put a cloud of unknowing between you and the divine and you kind of uh direct this piercing dart of love toward god you know that's completely unknown and so one thing that that i've experienced is once we direct that piercing dart of of love toward we know not what it kind of reveals itself at least in in my practice that in reality, it's not, uh, it's not our longing for the divine. It's the divine's longing through us for itself. And it's so bizarre and beautiful to, to be able to see that and to see, oh, it's not even, it's not even my personal will anymore. It's not even me desiring God. It's just God desiring God. And I'm just, you know, sitting there watching it. Yeah, that, that's totally beautiful. So, if you had to recommend um, one practice, one spiritual practice that, that you find 
beneficial, whether that's something that, you know, uh, was beneficial at a certain part of your path or, mm-hmm. or that's beneficial now, what would that be? Wow. That's a great question. Um, right now I'm on fire with this self-inquiry um, modality from Advaita Vedanta that, um, you know, looking not at the objects of awareness, but what's aware of those objects. And um, it's nice because it's pretty formless and it's completely internal and available to us. There's never a moment in which we're not aware and which awareness is shut down in some way. Um, and it can be really, really, really beneficial to just keep looking at what is experiencing this, what thinks it's depressed, what thinks it's stuck, what is exalted, what feels holy, you know, um, that's super rich ground and it's always available and we can do it um, without the help of a guru. That's a completely self-directed inquiry that we can engage in um, without the need for outer support. But I also feel like, especially in this time, there's a practice called Tonglen, which is um, uh, giving and taking, which is a meditation in which we, with an understanding of the basic nature of reality as our ground, so we can't not understand that or not at least have a conceptual grasp of the emptiness aspect of ultimate reality, but and then working with that grounding in relative reality in a meditation in which we, on the inhalation, we take on all of the suffering of the world in the form of dark, thick, acrid smoke, and we bring it into our heart center. So every mass shooting, every pandemic, every natural disaster, every human disaster, every death, every divorce, every loss of a child, everything that we can't endure and that takes place 7 billion times a day, you know, I mean, it's so limitless. And we just open ourselves up to that. We bring it in on the in-breath, this dark, acrid smoke of the suffering of the whole, not just our world, but all worlds, all realms, all sentient beings. And then when we bring it into our heart center, it's transmuted into light. And on the exhale, we send love and light out to all of those suffering beings and to all corners of reality without any obstacle. And I think that is, uh, that's a practice that transformed me early on and it really develops our compassion. It develops our capacity for holding suffering and um, it brings us into a closer connection with Christ, with um, bodhicitta, with the heart of awakening, with our fundamental reality, our basic aspect as the engine of love, right? The, a way of bringing that out into the relative world that um, is super powerful. Yeah, that's definitely one that I've, I've wanted to, to feature on, on the podcast. Um, and I, I, I had thought about putting it uh, in the last season I did for, for vision because there's that, you know, visualization component to it. But I decided, um, I think it would be better in this season, the, the season that I'm focusing on embodiment, because in my experience with it, although relatively limited, it kind of produces, at least in me, this um, embodied feeling that's, mm-hmm. that, that's lingering. And, and then when I go out into the world and I experience the suffering, it's almost like it's, you know, exposed a nerve in a way and like anything, you know, even the smallest thing just like, you know, grabs you, you know, and, and, uh, facilitates that, that compassion as a response. So, so yeah, I, I definitely would love to, to explore more Tonglen in this series. So you're, you're writing a book right now, right? Uh, the book is completed. I'm just trying to get it through the self-publication process. Oh, awesome. I thought, I thought you had just started it, but you're already finished. Nice. I'm finished. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so what's, what's your book called and, and what's it about? So the tentative title is The Awakened Heart. Um, and it's basically spiritual memoir. So it talks about uh, the specifics of my path, um, how I found my way to Tibetan Buddhism, what Tibetan Buddhism did for me, um, and then the incorporation of the medicine path into that work um, with the intention of offering it sort of as a guide for integrative work with multiple traditions, because that can be really scary, groundless territory for people. And I think that it can be beneficial to see that it's possible to do that in a mindful, authentic, heartfelt way that doesn't indulge in spiritual bypass or spiritual materialism, that doesn't fall to those pitfalls, but that is, uh, you know, a genuine expression of our own innate divinity that, again, it won't fit into a conceptual framework, right? Because it's everything. <laughs> so any, any conceptual framework, any practice framework is going to be somewhat limited in that way. So that's, that's, that's the nature of the book. Well, I am definitely excited to read that. Hopefully you get a copy for sure. Instagram is my main home. That's, that's really all I've got going on. All right. Well, this was a blast and thank you again. We'll talk soon. All right, brother. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. <laughs>